the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Justin. Hello, everyone. Hey, Lindsay. I'm very excited to talk about Dead Presidents. It's one that um, I was late to the game watching this movie. I think I'd caught it in snippets, but not something that I'd ever actually sat down and really taken in fully. And wow, what an experience. Yeah, I'm excited that you were down to do this one. I don't remember this movie being as bleak it plays much more bleak to like to my older eyes but uh i still think that this is such like a well-crafted and entertaining movie you know war movies can always be like pretty bleak and kind of beat you down and i think this is a, a great movie because i do consider it a war movie but there's a lot more outside of the war that's involved it's not just like strictly a movie where they're like either in boot camp or they're at war through the whole film That's one of the things that sets it apart from being considered a war movie. And I think the Hughes brothers even said they don't consider it that, which I kind of cocked my head like, really? (laughs) Really? But um, I think that that's one of the things that sets this movie apart from a lot of different things. It really falls into, you know, kind of like a coming of age story. It's a story about someone's life and in a special section of their life. But um, it's a very unique story. And there's so much to talk about with this, whether it's the Hughes brothers, uh, the directors, two identical brothers, Albert and Alan Hughes, who co-directed this movie together, or the story behind it. I'm not going to give anything away because it is uh, it's a it's a different we've talked about plenty of true stories on this podcast. This one, this one's a little different than what we've talked about before. Yeah, this uh, movie is loosely, loosely based off of actual events and we'll get into because the the actual person that some of this was pulled from is a very interesting character and had a very interesting life. And so we'll kind of talk about the the truths and fiction that were that were used in the story for Dead Presidents. And we'll also get into, you know, how this movie is kind of a different war movie, but it is a war movie. And it also is coming from a different perspective. You know, most uh, war movies that had been made prior to Dead Presidents were about a white experience of being a soldier and, you know, either being in the war or like fighting the war or coming home from the war. And this is uh, uh, the black experience of, of a soldier like fighting, you know, in a quote unquote white man's war and coming home and dealing not only coming home from the war and dealing with it as, as from a black experience, but also like dealing with a time period that was, you know, pretty tumultuous, not just um, for war times, but also like in the late 60s or early 70s um, yeah. with racial inequality and, and racism and racial injustice. So this movie, I think, hits on a lot of things. We'll get into some of that, but it's a very uh, expansive movie. Critically, this movie got kind of panned by a lot of people because they thought it was so like uneven and kind of jumped around all over the place. But I don't know, uh, like watching it, I, I just couldn't disagree more with critics with this particular movie. Like, I feel like it really follows a singular story and yeah. really gets yeah. dives deep into the character. And, and a lot of stuff was cut out of this movie. I mean, the Hughes brothers, 
said this movie could have been like three hours long. And it's a solid two hours as, as it is, you know, it's a solid two hours, but to be honest, I, I think it, it could have been a longer movie and it wouldn't have bothered me because yeah. the characters are Great. really rich and the setting is very, you know, interesting, but We'll talk more about that. A uh, lot to talk about with Dead Presidents. After our discussion, of course, always, we'll do our picks of the week. I went the uh, Lorenz Tate route with the 1997 film Love Jones, which I hadn't seen in a long time. And man, what a great revisit that was. I was so bummed I couldn't find it anywhere to watch because it's been since like 97 or 98 since I've seen it. And I was so in love with it then. And I know that I'm I'm forgetting a lot of things about it, but man, Lorenz Tate, what a dreamboat. Can I just say that right now? He's such an adorable man. I love seeing him in anything, any, any movie that he's ever in. He's such a great actor. And uh, Love Jones is a, is a wonderful movie. I'm so glad you did it. They talk about people aging well. And I watched an interview (laughs) with Lorenz Tate from like three months ago. And yeah. Yeah, they, they even in the inter- interview, because it was a Zoom interview, of course, and he said, you know, I used to play younger in, in movies, and they're like, younger, you look like they ha- he had posters of all his movies <laughs> behind him, and they're like, you look like you're doing your poster from the 90s. I mean, <laughs> the guy still looks like he's in his late 20s. Well, for my pick of the week, um, a movie with a few similar themes as Dead Presidents, and that is 1996's Set It Off. I hadn't seen that since the 90s, and I just watched it uh, last week after you said you were going to do it. That was a good revisit. I forgot that uh, F. Gary Gray directed that as well. I forgot that was his first movie after Friday. Set It Off is one that I I can't even count how many times I've seen that movie, but have always been a fan of it and happy to talk about it this time. Well, after our picks of the week, Lindsay will deliver her Murray moment as usual. I always look forward to that segment. Um, But before we get into our first clip from Dead Presidents, Lindsay, can you also give us your take on the story? What is Dead Presidents about your interpretation? Well, this movie follows the life of a young man at the end of high school, going into the Vietnam War, and then returning home to find another type of struggle. As if being an African-American man in the 70s, a soldier in an unpopular war wasn't enough of a struggle, he comes home to find, after putting his life on the line for his country, the support for him just isn't there. And finding he has no other options, he, two war buddies, and two close friends choose to rob a bank. This is the story of a young man's transition from boyhood to manhood into a troubled America wherein he finds his options are vastly limited. Nice summary. I mean, for a movie that spans a, a few years yeah, and five years. is about this yeah. about this kid's struggle, it's just um, yeah. There there there's a lot going on in this movie. I can't wait to talk about it. Well, let's go to our first clip, then we'll come back. We'll get into it. You two realize that soon we're gonna be out of school, right? Ooh, sure, boy. After four long years of that shit, man, I can't fucking wait to get out. That's all I've been thinking about, man. You know, I just been thinking about like what am I gonna do afterwards, right? You know, I can dig some traveling. You sound like you rich or something. Get it, nigga? You ain't even got a fucking job. I know. Well, you better take your ass off to college, man. I'm telling you. Uncle Sam grab your ass like you're gonna do this stupid motherfucker. Oh, bullshit, Skip, man. Ain't nobody gonna grab me. Jose, a recruiter can see your dumb ass a mile away. Look at you. You're a recruiter's dream. You're a 1-8. A one-way ticket to motherfucking Vietnam if I ever saw one. That's why I'm going to Hunter College. Goddamn right. I ain't fighting no white man's war. Shit. Them Viet Cong, Chunk, whatever the fuck ain't done shit to me. I don't even know them motherfuckers, man. And I ain't afraid of no war. What the fuck you been smoking? Uh, y'all might think I'm crazy, but... 
I just want to do something that's different. Yeah, well, getting your fucking head blown off here is different. <laughs> hey, man, turn that shit down. And throw this motherfucker down. Ain't nobody in the hurry to go to school. Man, leave that shit up. So over the last several years, a lot of the movies that we've talked about, some have been based off of true stories. Some have been about actual characters, historical figures. And this one is a little bit interesting in the sense that it's loosely based on a story, but it's based off of several things that that happened in history. If you're looking up information on Dead Presidents, the movie, a lot of the information will draw you to a book called Bloods and Oral History of Vietnam War by Black Veterans, uh, written by Wallace Terry. The experience, the Black experience of Vietnam, uh, the Hughes brothers pulled from that. But this is a heist movie, so they also pulled from an actual heist that you can look up that that took place in 1981, a very violent uh, heist of a Brinks truck. But the majority of the movie, a lot of it's pulled from Wallace Terry's book. And Wallace Terry really was the first uh, Black war correspondent for mainstream media. And remember that the Vietnam War War was really the first uh, war that was televised, you know, like the one where we got active updates. So people on the front lines, people that were there, I mean, they were super important and let alone like the first black war correspondent. So he had um, kind of that idea in his mind as far as his own personal experience and also being someone that saw firsthand what was going on. He was also a minister. And so that he was uh, out with some of these platoons, he would be the guy that would be administering last rites for men that were dying on the field. So this guy was involved. And he was sent over there initially. um, He worked for Time magazine. He was sent over there initially to write a cover story. And it was a hugely successful story and then was sent back over to gather more information for a planned out book. And the more that he saw over there, the more that he really started realizing that the ratio of black men that were involved in the war, their deaths were kind of exceeding representation in war. So it seemed a little more alarming that um, the black male experience wasn't really being told. And so that was one thing that he was really trying to communicate with getting people's stories and gathering all this information for what would soon be the novel Bloods. Now, as this was the first fully integrated, like racially integrated war, um, there was a lot to tell in here. And Wallace Terry had a firsthand account of everyone's experience in this. And that is naturally going to involve civil rights issues. You know, those things are going to come up. And so he writes this story initially. And what kind of comes off is... Unfortunately, this idea of and and I am quoting this from someone else of saying like black men with guns is what it comes off with is what he's the the, the story that he's coming out with. And so this book that he initially is trying to shop around gets rejected an ungodly amount of times. But the man is adamant about getting the story out as he should. And it was a editor from Random House who says, okay, why don't you take this story and make it a little bit more personal rather than writing your firsthand account of things that you're seeing? Why don't you use people's stories, people's interviews that you have from Vietnam and tell their experiences So what Bloods ended up being, it was published in 1984, it ended up being uh, first-hand accounts of 20 different 
soldiers' stories. And after this book comes out, it starts garnering some critical acclaim and people start taking notice. When this happens, especially in the mid-80s, Hollywood is going to come a-calling, you know, with any type of success. You've got already a story written before you. All you're going to need is someone to maybe rewrite it, make it into a screenplay, make it work for a movie. But you have the basis idea. So Terry knows that he's got something on his hands, but being involved in this, being so immersed in it, he also knows he has an epic. So he's kind of holding out. He really wants something deep, something that is going to talk about racial inequality, talk about all of these things that people weren't talking about, the black experience of being in Vietnam. And it wasn't something that he had been seeing, whether it be in movies, whether it be in mainstream media, just talking about this wasn't something that was that was coming up. So he was holding out. And while the hope for um, a movie was there, um, it wasn't coming to fruition very quickly. But he did eventually partner with Quincy Jones and develop this one-man show and traveled around, toured around, performing it for six years, which is pretty kind of incredible. While this is going on, there's still no real progress on a film. And then out of nowhere, really, Albert and Alan Hughes, two twin co-directors, contact Wallace Terry and express interest in telling um, some of the story of Bloods. So upon further conversations with them, Terry realizes that they're just really kind of interested in one story. And that is the story of Haywood Kirkland, who in subsequent years would come to be known as Ari Moretazon. And Terry was kind of excited at this idea of just using one story because that also meant that he retained all of the rights to Bloods, I mean, predominantly, because the story that they wanted to take was one person's story out of 20, and they said, hey, it's going to be loosely based on this guy. Terry was good with it and evidently was paid more than what he was paid for the initial book advance for Bloods, so he was all about it. And then Ari Moretazan was contacted and he gave his blessing to go ahead with the story and was also informed that this was going to be something that was loosely based on his experience in the book. Now, the Hughes brothers did hire Moretazan to be a consultant on Dead Presidents, but um, the story kind of does evolve from there and it doesn't necessarily follow what Ari's exact experience was in the war. Yeah, I found a really nice sort of post-release of Dead President's interview with Ari Moretazan where he's talking about his reaction to the film of Dead Presidents. And this was in 1995, so this was like right after the movie came out. And, you know, he said what he saw on screen really wasn't what he felt was where his life um, kind of started. Like he said, where his life begins is where Dead Presidents ends. And he was involved in a holdup robbing uh, truck for cash that was going to be destroyed, just like it was in Dead Presidents. Um, he orchestrated that. In his life, the heist takes place in D.C., though nobody was injured in that heist. And he did go to jail for it. And when he was in jail, he started getting into more, you know, trying to help out veterans. And that became like his life's work is like helping out aiding in veterans who, you know, have come back from the war and couldn't find their place in life and, and needed help. But also the heist that takes place in Dead Presidents is very, very violent and is not really politically driven. This is where it's kind of like, you know, we want to make it clear that like uh, Ari Moretazan was not 
the the heist in which he was involved in was not a violent heist like nobody was injured he also like took that money it was for political reasons why he got involved in the a lot of the money he like gave away before he was even captured um the the heist that takes place in dead presidents was based more off of and like i said in the beginning uh, a brinks truck heist where uh, multiple people were were killed like uh, cops and and guards that were were gunned down um, by the perpetrators so there's like a mixing of like truth and fiction and dead presidents um, which I think ha- would have to be hard for you f- to be the subject of the movie but then say wait a minute you know I was involved and I orchestrated this thing where we were going to do a heist but then they show like these guys you know killing people and in kind of like giving up on, you know, getting life in prison and and then the movie just kind of ending bleakly where his life really like his life's work was like, you know, the the seed for that was planted by him going to prison and having this time in his life to educate himself more and, and help other prisoners, help other veterans. And then also ended up getting out of jail early, you know, early release because he had helped out so many people. He said he didn't really see a lot of the lead character that's portrayed by Lorenz Tate. He didn't see a lot of himself in that character, though he did comment that, you know, the Hughes brothers said they were going to make it their own story and, and that, you know, he did feel like it was the black experience in Vietnam. It just wasn't his exact experience, even though they were kind of like taking from his own personal story that was portrayed in the book. I think one of the most fascinating things about this, just looking at this from a storytelling point of view, is this is maybe one of the most integrated stories I've ever heard about as far as taking from truth and blending fiction in. In that way, I feel like if I were Ari Moretazan, I would be kind of annoyed, like, you know, that that's that's not my story. I, I can't, you know, I mean, yeah, you're taking pieces and bits and here and put making you know, making your own story about it. But I think in some ways, it might be an easier pill to swallow as far as looking at it from a Hollywood movie standpoint. You know, you're making this movie as a one, you know, your two directors are 23 and they did help craft, you know, this this story altogether. I think it is smart in some ways when you're trying to sell a movie when you're trying to garner interest in something that is very um, important as far as the black experience in Vietnam and not just black men, but the experience of vets returning home and how difficult it was for a lot of society to accept them, you know, and to find jobs and to, you know, just be faced with all of these problems as soon as they come home and they're also scarred from war. There were a lot of social issues being discussed in this movie. And I think taking elements of this and making it a little different, we're okay when you think about it from a movie standpoint. Sure, okay, Ari Moretazan's story is fascinating from one standpoint. When you look at it from a what is going to be marketable and commercially successful and trying to communicate a important issue, you know, and getting people to watch a movie, you're going to have to do it a certain way. And in the mid-90s when this movie was coming out, this was there were a lot of hot-button issues at that point as far as 
what was going on between like racial clashings just just in American culture, let alone talking about the Vietnam War era. So I think the idea of blending fiction and reality did work well with this movie. But if I were, you know, the one in involved, if I were Ari, I could I could imagine being annoyed. But putting the African-American experience in Vietnam at the forefront is what stands out the so much in this movie. And, you know, even not knowing that this was partially a true story is what stays with me after this movie is over. I mean, it's it's um, very obvious. I, and I agree. Ari Moretazan's story uh, would make a fascinating documentary from him, his release from prison and what he's done over the last like 40 years. But you know, you take the Hughes brothers who I keep saying, you know, it's hard to not drive home the fact that these guys are 22 when they filmed Dead Presidents. I mean, this was their second film. They were young, hungry, uh, stylish directors. You know, they came from, you know, they were making music videos in their late teens and then made Menace to Society. And they had a lot, you know, riding on their shoulders. And so they wanted to make a cool, stylish movie. And the the forefront of their movie is the black experience in Vietnam. But, you know, they needed a hook. And that hook is like this cool heist film, which they deliver. You know, they deliver this sort of very violent movie that that had a lot of action, you know, in the war sequences and in the the heist, really more so than I remembered. I mean, I didn't remember how violent this movie was until um, after watching it a few times. It's like, man, that you know, you compare it to a lot of stuff. It's like they, they kind of went a, a little crazy with the violence, which they themselves said, you know, hey, we were 22. You know, we were we were like, let's go for it. Like, let's let's make it as graphic as possible. But like you said, you know, from a studio standpoint, which you have to take into consideration. I mean, I know that there's concessions to be made, but like most of the movies we talk about were studio produced, and there is a there is a filmmaker in between the the art and the picture that they're trying to get done, and like a studio that's saying, you know, you get X amount of dollars, X amount of days to shoot you know, you can have this, but you can't have that deliver something that hopefully audiences will react to and spend money on. And then also, so the studio can make money. And so the filmmakers continue to make movies for two guys who were 22 to go out and make a movie that spans five years. It covers like not only that a period piece, but also has like a social message also fall into the action genre. As much as I sidestepped a lot of Ari's life after prison, what was left on screen was you know, again, like you said, the, the black experience in Vietnam on the forefront and vets coming home to like a very troubled world and not fitting in and not having people really understand what they went through. But then also this very, very stylish movie that's like got an incredibly cool soundtrack, very visually stunning, has a lot of swagger. A lot of war movies have been made. And the point of those movies is war is hell. And they're a lot, a lot of times are the same thing. It's like, you know, it's a variation of like soldiers, their friends get killed in war, they're coming home. This one had something different to offer than any movie that was being made about the war experience. This movie kind of transcends um, just being a war film or just being like a quote unquote hood film. The story of Anthony played by Lorenz Tate is such an all American story. Like he's your everyday guy, you know, like he doesn't want to go to college. He wants to do something else. And he looks to his father. That's like, you know, going to war made a man out of you. That's what I want to do. 
and he's kind of going through life. He's always running, you know, he's always running from one thing to another. You do things when you're young without really thinking about them. And in that way, this is the coming of age aspect of this movie. You know, we're used to seeing these coming of age stories, say, like in Stand By Me, something that that does deal with 60s era, 50s, 60s, 70s era, you know, having someone's story coming from what he was coming from um, and environment and community just hadn't happened. It really hadn't happened. And, and we did see that in 1991 um, with uh, Boys in the Hood. But that was, um, you know, that was much more centralized. It was, um, you know, South Central L.A., very, very um, homogenous community. You know, this is going over um, various different aspects of a character's growth, you know, and, and seeing the growth of Anthony in this story. It's not just it's not just a coming of age story. You know, we watch him go from graduating <laughs> even something like a beautiful transition which is also like kind of a simple visual transition that the Hughes brothers do but like from like the you know losing his virginity to like the next morning like this running transition from him like literally running like I just said like he's always running right he's literally running through this scene of running out of this girl's house after he's just had sex and then like the transition is him running into Vietnam. It is a very straightforward three-act film, but in all of these instances, we see him going through life experiences. And whether that is the loss of innocence, coming of age, and then this coming home story, and all of these interwoven ideas of masculinity, or even, I mean, throughout from when he is in high school to the point at the very end of the movie when he's, you know, sentenced to 15 years to life in prison, we realize through all that, all that time, Anthony has every moment to make a change in his life. And he's been running, he's been running the whole time until one man who discounts his experience in Vietnam, who is a World War II vet, you know, that says he fought a real war. One man that puts the hammer down and says, actually, your life is over, actually, right now. And it's not until that moment, you know, that we see Anthony go, hey, wait a second, I can't run anymore. I just, you know, I was just like stopped in my life. But watching him go over these series of years, it's just um, such a journey with his character and not to boil it down to something basic, but man, we never see this with a black character. I think that that is in one way how Dead Presidents not only transcends just being a war movie, being a coming of age story. It's just um, it, it just encompasses something that we haven't seen. Dead Presidents doesn't they don't spend like a large majority of the movie uh, focused on one particular thing. But there is that underlayer, you know, like the, the themes you're talking about of like, you know, especially of struggle and survival, because the lead character, he doesn't know where he fits in necessarily in his world. So he's trying something different. And really, the the war aspect of his experience doesn't necessarily seem bad for him. He seems like the most in control when he's in the war scenes, you know, the most in control of his life, though, you know, what he thought, you know, this was going to lead to a better life we see is the opposite. I think that's where the real struggle comes in the movie, like where the real bleakness, um, it's like the realities he face at home are almost as worse as the stuff that we see 
in the war sequences that he sees in Vietnam, you know, having to deal with the fact that he hasn't seen his girlfriend, who he now has a, a daughter who's like three or four. You know, she's been spending time with a, another man who's a pimp in the neighborhood, has been also looking after Anthony's daughter. His friend, uh, played by Chris Tucker, is now like hooked on heroin. They were war buddies together and now. Um, you know, he's struggling. He can't get a job at the, at the old place that he used to work. Uh, you know, he gets fired from his job as a butcher. Uh, it's just kind of like one hit after another that, you know, we know from the beginning of the movie because they show in the title sequences like uh, little bits of of them, you know, getting ready for the bank heist. We know that this is like leading to some decisions that were made that lead you to a point where you're going to commit like a big crime because you don't feel like you have any other options. And that that discussion creeps in about halfway into the movie, you know, when when he first brings it up, you know, the idea comes up of robbing this truck. Um, and the idea doesn't come from Anthony. It doesn't come from the lead character. It comes from, his, you know, his buddy who is also back home from the war. And he kind of laughs it off at first, but later on, once, you know, we see his struggle, he starts thinking, maybe this is the only way out, you know, is to, you know, take all the talents I've learned from the war and use it to, you know, commit this crime so that I can have money to, like, survive like everybody else. And I think in some ways that goes back to the idea of pretty much all of the characters involved with the ultimate bank heist. They are all good people. You know, at the at their core, like they all have, you know, things about them that maybe aren't like make them the perfect person. But um, they are good people who all decide to do a bad, you know, quote unquote bad thing. But it is something that everything in their life has, has led them to that moment. I mean, one thing about Anthony's character that isn't um, it, it's one thing that the Hughes brothers don't really explore too much, but that he wants to be a good father. He wants to be a good partner. But life kind of gets in the way his experience in Vietnam gets in the way and the trauma that he is not dealing with from war is, is what's prohibiting him from doing what he wants to do what he is capable of and so that combined with you know like you said losing his job like not being able to like get the old hookup that he had with uh, Kirby his his former employer you know all of these factors are kind of working against him thus leading him to the only thing that he feels like makes sense and ultimately leading him to wanting to pull off this heist that in and of itself the the whole idea of the heist you know it is the more actiony part of the movie but like think about this okay so the money that they're taking from this armored car is they rationalize it by saying that this is money that is old money and it's just going to go be destroyed. It's going to be burned. And there's I'm not going to say the exact quote in the movie, but in essence saying these people got money to burn and I can't even get a job. You know, and I think that there's to me, that's that's a lot of the heart of the, of the latter half of this movie. And it, it, it just feels like um, everything in Anthony's life, everything in everybody else's life is is leading up to to this moment. And it's very rational and it's kind of alarming <laughs> when at least to me, when I can, you know, go, yeah, you know what? I um I'm with you. <laughs> I, I would probably be right there. Another thing too, when they 
when they show the violence of this crime, they do kill people. You know, I mean, it's kind of a, it's a botched, it's a botched heist. And some of, you know, Anthony's friends die, but they also kill a couple people as well, like when they're exchanging gunfire. But the underlying message in this movie, if there is a message, because, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of people were hard on it saying like this movie's pointless. The movie's clear to me. It's just the Hughes brothers try not to be heavy handed with things. And there is this idea and it's been in other movies before, but you know, you can kill somebody in war, you can commit these atrocities in the name of war and be heroic, but you commit a crime in regular everyday society. If you're somebody who's poor, that's it, you know, that's, it's considered like the most despicable thing on the planet and you're, you're, you're sent away to prison or you're executed. And I think that there is a, a little bit of, of that underlying here is that, you know, he, he saw these things that people were okay with, you know, I mean, these really horrific things that, that soldiers did, but, you know, once he's back at home, he kind of has to live the straight and narrow and not get any help from anybody. And he was sold on the idea of do something for your country and your country is going to do something back for you after you've made the sacrifice. I don't think the movie is in any way trying to like justify killing people and like robbing a, a, a Brinks truck. I don't think that's the point of the movie. I think the same thing with Menace to Society that the Hughes brothers hit home on. The guy robs a liquor store and you can watch the news and say, oh, well, that's a bad guy. Always been that way. But then, you know, they show well, what, what creates a person, what pushes a person to that level, you know. And so there's always another side there to that story. And I think the Hughes brothers do a good job of like telling that personal story in an entertaining way. I think that is a really good point. Talking about the Hughes brothers and saying, we can't forget that making a movie is for entertainment purposes. So when you're talking about guys putting their asses on the line for America to create democracy, and then they come home to inequitable living situations, when you're trying to make an entertaining movie about that, in essence saying everything in life boils down to money, whether it's war or just trying to continue on with life, having a family after you've been faced with something that is horribly traumatic. I think that the Hughes brothers took a real life story and made it as entertaining as possible um, for a serious subject matter they were tackling, you know, and there's just, um, there's a lot woven into this story. And I think that, um, yeah, I mean, it's two hours long. It could easily be three or four hours if they really wanted to go fully in depth into the experience, especially at that time. But I think that the way that the Hughes brothers pulled it off, it makes it so it is a fast moving film that has a very straightforward three act structure. You know, you feel like you really do move through this kid's life with him and you you see you start out from an, an innocent you know, coming of age, like type of, uh, type of beginning to basically putting the hammer down on this guy and, and ending his life and sentencing him to life in prison for, for pulling off this heist when he felt like, Hey man, I, I just offered up my life for this country and this is how I'm repaid. And I think that that's how a lot of vets felt when they came home and didn't have any help, whether that is financial, whether that's health, mental and physical health. You know, there's just a lot woven into the story. And it is something to really like sit down and think about just the Vietnam experience, specifically, though, the black man's experience in the Vietnam War. They even the Hughes brothers also try to hit on the the neighborhood of when he goes back to the Bronx, like the Hughes brothers wanted to show like, you know, he lives in like a fairly decent neighborhood. 
it's racially mixed. And then when he gets back, you know, we're, this is four years later, when he gets back to the neighborhood, it's a little more run down. He meets up with his buddy, who is also a veteran played by Chris Tucker. And he said, you know, white people are moving out. You know, things are, you know, it's it's things are kind of looking run down. And the, they were trying to work that into the movie to show the neighborhood. And uh, I think it was like um, the cinematographer, Lisa Rinsler, said she was unhappy about the fact that they they only had one day to shoot that scene where he's talking to Skippy um, played by Chris Tucker. And they said that, you know, the sun was shining and it looked really beautiful and they were trying to make it look more muted and make the neighborhood look rundown. And it was the only place that they could shoot. They wanted to find a more rundown looking place to kind of show how the neighborhood had went downhill, but they were on a time crunch and it was like, they either have to get this shot with that scene of him talking about it. And so they were kind of hoping that the idea got across in the dialogue versus the visuals, which sort of does. But I think that that's why the movie, it's like, it's like you said, very fast paced, but there are those, those points in there, you know, they are hitting on these points in time and history where, um, you know, white people were moving out in neighborhoods that were racially mixed. And going back to the, what you were saying about the DP saying that she wished that what they were saying would have matched visually what she had hoped for. I think that that honestly, um, I mean, I get what she's saying, but I honestly, it, it didn't hit me until I, I heard her say that because I was so wrapped up in the performances. And I think that that's probably one thing that is the strongest um, all throughout the film. The lighting is also really strong to me in this movie too, but on top of everything, the performances, and we'll get into that in discussion too, but um, for me, the performances in this movie kind of outweigh any type of thing that, you know, you wish you could have had differently, you know, in, in, ha in how a scene looked or if the dialogue was lacking in a scene or here or there. Everyone is, is such a solid performer. And um, yeah, maybe we should get to talking about the cast. Yeah, yeah. And I agree with you. I think uh, good performances go a long way, you know, and if like a movie can be short on story. If you're there with the performances, if you're like that riveted that you don't even notice what's going on in the background, you know, mm -hmm. that says a lot, but yeah, let's, let's do that. We'll yeah. get into uh, the cast. We'll go to another clip from dead presidents. We'll come back. We'll talk about the cast and characters of this movie. All right. 6:15 AM. The truck pulls out of the post office at 149th and grand concourse. Now it makes one stop before it goes to DC which is a mail drop-off at First Federal Loan and Savings, which is on Noble Street and West. Now, Kirby, you're going to position yourself in a getaway car at the end of the corner where you can see everything. Jose, me and you going to position ourselves behind the bank underneath the left and the right side of the loading dock. Delilah, you're going to position yourself inside the dumpster, which is located directly across from the loading dock. Skippy, I want you to position yourself approximately 10 feet from the alleyway. There, you're supposed to look out. We all know what to do at the point of attack because we've gone over that shit enough. If anybody gets caught, shut the fuck up and we'll keep your money. <laughs> fuck that shit, man. I'm telling you right now, if I get caught, I'm shooting my fucking way out. We can put that shit down. I think we need another man on the street with Skip. Somebody to come on the other side. I agree. 
Uh-uh, man. Hell no. You don't need no other man. Shit, I can see. Besides, we got too many motherfuckers anyway. Fuck that shit, Kirby, man. Everybody trusts everybody here, right? I can get somebody from my organization. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't want none of them revolutionary niggas involved. You can cut your eye at me all you want to. I ain't too keen on having that brought up in here, neither. Well, you the one talking about we need another man. Make up your goddamn mind. You have somebody in mind, Anthony? We might well put a motherfucking ad in the paper, then we're going to get everybody. Shit ain't going to be no money left for a nigga. So as we were saying before, one of the strongest things about Dead Presidents is the cast and um, how everyone just works together so uh, cohesively and just, uh, I I don't know, to me, the atmosphere of this movie has everything to do with uh, the characters and their interactions together. Even uh, all the way down to like small characters, especially, you know, the Hughes brothers said this in some interviews, you know, I found where when they were casting this and they're also doing a period piece, you know, they wanted to be authentic to the time period in you know, all the way down to like showing a pimp that lives in the city, like on this block, but not to be a exploitation version of what a pimp is. Um, but also all the way down to like the clothing styles and hairstyle. They didn't want Anthony to have a big, huge Afro, even though that was indicative of the time period. They didn't want the audience to, to, to laugh it off. Like, you know, they said when people watch casino and the socks that Robert De Niro is like pulling up to his knees, Those are what the real guy wore, but, you know, the audience just started laughing at it. So casting performances and letting the performances do the talking, not so much the the outfits and like trying to make things authentic, but letting the performances be in the forefront. And what a great cast to do that with Lorenz Tate, who is to me like criminally underused. I mean, he, he should have had like a huge, huge career in films. I mean, he has done a lot of stuff on television, but, I mean, just came out of the gate with Menace to Society, Dead Presidents, with Love Jones, with The Inkwell, you know, did all these movies when he was in his early 20s and um, has always been able to, like, portray someone who is older than his years. And especially for a movie like Dead Presidents, it takes place over five years. You know, he's like, has to start the movie out as an 18 year old and then, you know, play someone who's been through a lot and lived through a lot and, you know, is in their like early twenties now. Five years doesn't seem like a very long time, but when you're, you know, go from 18 to 23, I mean, that's kind of a crazy jump in maturity and in life and, and changes. So to, for an actor to be able to handle that and say, no, no, I can start this out where I'm just like this kind of dumb high school kid to, you know, like a hardened, like a war veteran. I believe every minute of it when he's on screen and also how he can go from being like so gentle and charismatic to like very vicious and cold, but the audience, you know, never losing sympathy for him. I know I gushed about Lorenz Tate at the very beginning of this episode, but man, I'm with that guy from moment one until the very end when he feels just wronged by the world and chucks his chair in the courtroom with the judge like i'm with him i feel him i'm I'm right there with him lorenz tate does such an amazing job in this film you know we didn't really mention this in discussion one but the movie really is is about a group of friends that they kind of go their separate ways and come back together again you know end up doing this heist together and his two friends played by chris tucker playing skippy and freddie rodriguez playing jose they uh 
start out all three is you know kind of naive goofball kids all end up you know in vietnam together or they all end up in vietnam not quite together skippy and and lorenz tate are in the same unit for a little while with chris tucker skippy i think he adds so much humor to this movie and really much needed humor because like we said this is a it's a Dead Presence is a really bleak film. It really, for the most part, is there's not a lot of positive things going on. And every moment that he's in, I feel like, and I don't know if he's like slipping in jokes that weren't in the script or what, but I feel like every moment that he's on screen, even when it's a serious moment, he's getting a laugh, you know, out of me anyway. Yeah. There is a very abrupt change from the beginning portion from like stage one of this movie into Vietnam. And I think the Hughes brothers intended for it to be abrupt, you know, going from this group of friends that are hanging out and kind of shooting the shit a little bit with each other. And then that change into Vietnam that you're kind of shaken up and you rethink, you know, okay, what kind of movie am I watching? But the element of Chris Tucker and his humor that he does bring into the film is not overutilized. It feels more like a natural of just like that friend that just jokes around or says funny, quippy things versus somebody that's going in for the joke um, or typical Chris Tucker roles that we've seen like since he's like gained a lot of popularity. That's not kind of what is happening in this movie. Skippy next to Keith David is maybe my favorite character. I love Lorenz Tate though. He's wonderful, but Skippy, we see a lot of character arc in him. You know, he seems a little superficial, a little performancey. He tries to be bigger than like what he is. Um, but we do see him kind of getting messed up by being in war, you know, and then he's also a heroin addict. There's a lot of elements to his character that shows the range of what Chris Tucker can do. He's not just a one-trick pony as far as humor. The guy has a lot of acting chops behind him, and I love seeing him in this role. And since I brought him up, Keith David. Can we talk about Keith David for a second as Kirby? My man. I love seeing... Is there any movie where Keith David, he doesn't make it better? I don't think so. He always gets cool roles, but... I think the the Hughes brothers were a big fan of him, and this was like a tailor-made role to like, how cool can we make this uh, Kirby character? Like, we'll cast Keith David and have him with this sort of like smooth voice and leather jacket and like has like a wooden leg, but we'll like fuck somebody up at the drop of a hat. Everybody in town know I got a wooden leg, and that motherfucker pulls it off and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and also, too, that he is a kind of a father figure to the Lorenz Tate character. I mean, Lorenz Tate has a father who's there, but Kirby's like runs his own joint. He's like his own boss. He doesn't really answer to anybody. You know, gives Lorenz Tate's character his first experience of like a little bit of freedom, like, you know, giving him a little bit of money, give him a little bit of responsibility and uh, running numbers for him. The Hughes brothers do a nice job of like taking that Keith David character and like showing four years later, he's a little bit more beat down. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. I'm just like trying to get by. And this person who Lorenz Tate has always kind of looked up to, he kind of sees him as, man, I thought this guy had it made. You know, he was like the king of this his whole world. And, and now he, you know, is trying to scrape like two dimes together. Keith David, I think, does a great job of, of showing the cool reserve side, but then also showing the let's get down to business when he decides to help, you know, they have Keith David's character help 
with the heist, no messing around. He's kind of like keeping everybody in line. Now, although Keith David and Chris Tucker might be two of my favorites here, I got to say Rose Jackson, who plays Juanita, who is Anthony's girlfriend outside of the war that he has a child with. Rose Jackson does such an incredible job, and it's definitely based on her performance alone and also the chemistry that she has with Lorenz Tate. And there was quite a lot of ad-libbing between those two as well. But what she brings to this role, it, it's funny how, you know, you, you think about, okay, a movie that shot over just a couple months time span, but is supposed to take place over four to six years, let's just say for this movie. It is funny how she seems so much younger in the beginning than what she does when Lorenz Tate is comes back after the war and she's, you know, got like a kid, a full-fledged grown toddler on her hands. Her scenes with him, especially when it gets a little bit more volatile. I was unfamiliar with Rose Jackson before this movie, but I have to say I wish she was in more things because I think she brought so much to it. When he gets back, you know, the the most emotionally jarring scenes of, of him are when they're in their apartment together. And when anytime you see an argument in the movie, it's always can be kind of strange because one actor can like blow up and there's, you know, people tend to scream or or they spew out like, you know, this like perfect dialogue for an argument. And I like the way their argument seems so erratic, like she's sort of mocking him at one point, but then... Mm -hmm. Also kind of laying out the reality of like their lives. They're not fitting together. I do like that the Hughes brothers do this. There's a scene where he kind of freaks out and he like grabs her and like starts shaking her and he like chokes Oof. her a yeah. little bit. And normally that scene would go on further, but she kind of starts crying. Like he exits the room. She seems like super upset. And then the, they just cut away from it. And it's perfect because if you get, if you have the, if you have the momentum, it's like, it's, I love that they're like, you know, we're not going to hang on this. We're going to quick cut out of this, you know, because like she gave the performance and then boom, they're out. And I, I like that that movie does the, the Hughes brothers do that a lot in this movie where they give you just, just the amount that you need. And they're not afraid to just like immediately cut away from that, not have to let things linger, especially when you, when you have a performance of an actor who can, who can do that, where they can just be like ch almost choked out and then sort of that gasping like cry like you know emotion in their face and it's like let's just see that for for just like 10 seconds and then we're out um next to rose jackson we have uh who plays her sister uh, delilah nabouche wright i saw blade before i saw dead president so i knew her from that movie um nabouche wright is actually the face that you see <laughs> on the, on the movie poster for dead presidents. She's in the movie in a little bit in the first and second act, but really comes into play in the um, third act of the film um, as somebody who is the, you know, little sister of Juanita always kind of had a thing for Anthony, but gets roped into pulling off the um, heist with Anthony and ultimately does not have a good climax for her character, but is one of the most admirable characters of of all of the film she's someone that we see from the beginning she's been focused about what where she wants to go in life and when anthony returns from war she's somebody that's part of like black liberation like she is about starting a movement and actually is somebody that influences anthony in some ways yeah i think her character is like one of the more pivotal characters to 
show the politics of the time. Her kind of saying, you know, yeah, you fought a white man's war. And he's like, no, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. She's like, it's okay. You've been you've been brainwashed by your country. So that's kind of a hardcore thing. You know, he, we've just seen him like fight in Vietnam. Like that's like sort of the fr- and he even says it, you know, he's like, oh, a simple hello would be fine. But you got to get all political. And, you know, she was like, these are political times. And I do like that they're able to, you know, show the politics of the time and and sort of the hot button issues at the time, but work it into the story. The character of Jose, played by Freddie Rodriguez, um, who does a great job. Love that little dude from Six Feet Under. Certainly plays a pivotal role in this friendship group that he, he really comes into play in the third act of the film when they pull off the armored car heist. You know, Dead Presidents is made up of three, four main central characters, but all of the bit players that surround that make up the whole atmosphere of this movie and again anything that's lacking in the background or the dialogue is made up through the performances and ad-libbing and things that are added in with all of these actors specific strengths yeah i think that there are two roles that you know two actors who have very little screen time you know just tiny tiny bit parts in the movie that are long lasting are terrence howard and clifton powell like Clifton Powell playing Cuddy, the the neighborhood pimp who's been kind of watching over Lorenz Tate's girlfriend while he's been away at war. He is just like, oof, yeah, such a like creepy character and just seems so real and like gritty. And uh, Terrence Howard, who plays Cowboy, the guy who has two different confrontations with Lorenz Tate at at the uh, pool hall. You know, Terrence Howard, I love him. I, I love uh, his performance in Hustle and Flow. Um, but this is one of those early movies where you can kind of see he's like a commanding presence and, you know, helps also show allowing his character to, to kind of dominate Lorenz Tate's character. And then later on, we see, you know, the reversal of Lorenz Tate is now like grown and is not going to let uh, Terrence Howard, like, you know, tell him what's what. But both of those guys, man, they small. I, I love it when there's an actor who's just like on screen for a little bit of time and they're real memorable. And then later on, they're like, you know, four or five years down the road, you see them like kind of like blow up. To kind of round out the cast, we do have Bakeem Woodbine, who, man, if you know this movie, you know who Cleon is, especially in the Vietnam scenes. I really like his character. He seems to really articulate the beginning of trauma that happens in Vietnam and who he becomes in the third act of the film. I have a lot of questions, you know, on if he is truly the godlike man that he professes to be in the third act of the film or if the trauma of what he experienced in Vietnam forever changed him and he's just like masking who he is. I have a lot of questions about Cleon. He's the only character and I don't think it's necessarily the performance. I just... uh his character seems a little over the top for me. He's the only character in the movie that he's so outrageous with the Vietnam stuff. It, <laughs> yeah. it may, it, you know, immediately I'm like, of all the people that you would consider to help you out with this heist, um, you, you're like, hey, we're gonna find this guy who is like, we know he's crazy. You know, we know he, he's not afraid to kill somebody, but someone like that seems like a loose cannon. They do show that he is, you know, has become a preacher, and we do see that he's seems somewhat, you know. Uh, normalized uh, more than the other guys have maybe because he was so crazy when he went to war as far as also the vietnam sequences 
I mean, maybe we should kind of close it out on cast, but um, there is Michael Imperioli who has an unforgettable part in this film. Oh, how traumatic it is. Unnecessary. Unnecessary. Unnecessary? I think so. I mean, that stuff happened, though. What happened to his character that was, like, known that that happened? It's it's maybe unnecessary for a movie, but it was a pretty known thing that... Was it pretty known? Yeah. People getting their junk cut off? Yeah, and disemboweled? And and put in their mouth? I mean, I don't know about the mouth part, Well, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) They show a close-up of a guy with his... His uh, penis detached and shoved into his mouth, and he's still alive. I'm unfamiliar with the mouth part, but I have heard of the junk being cut off. Yeah. For sure. It's an unforgettable part in the movie. We'll definitely say it's that. That it is. That it is. How did that make it through the MPAA? You I, know? To be honest, I have no idea. No idea how that made it um, through. But maybe because it's they were able to say it was like, you know, they're showing like real war violence. As limited amount of scenes as Michael Imperioli has in this movie, I think the guy's a great actor. I'm very glad that he had a much larger career after this movie, after his very small role in this movie. But man, how unforgettable is it? You know what I mean? Yeah, and I I feel like he was directly cast because of the Hughes brothers' love for Scorsese. They cast a character who played Spider in Goodfellas, and if you know anything about the Hughes brothers or if you've watched any interviews, they love Scorsese and, you know, Menace to Society. They, they framed that movie. They outlined it by basically taking the formula outline of Goodfellas and saying, we're going to use this style, you know, with music and, and camera movements. And, and they, that carried over into Dead Presidents as well. The Hughes brothers, I, I feel like later in their career, they kind of shed that a little bit. But in their first two films, especially Men of Society, but also in Dead Presidents, you see the Scorsese influence a couple of times where it's almost goes beyond like an homage. They're not the only filmmakers that are guilty of it. I think you... The same could be said when you're watching Boogie Nights. I love Boogie Nights, but Paul Thomas Anderson, another director who you watch his other movies and he sort of develops his own style, but you watch parts of Boogie Nights and you're just like, man, I feel like I'm watching a Scorsese movie, not like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. So the Hughes brothers did do a lot of that. I think they, they you know, wore their uh, influences heavily on their sleeve. For the most part, it was, you know, it, they, they are stylish filmmakers. And I think both Menace to Society and, and, Dead Presidents are pretty riveting, cool-looking films, you know, dealing with um, heavy subject matter, but you can say the music mixed with scenes in the same way that Scorsese can make scenes look cool by, I'm going to have like a cool soundtrack overlaid with, you know, a sweeping camera and red lighting. The Hughes brothers definitely pull off a lot of that. And the music, as in all Scorsese movies, you know, you're always like, man, what a great soundtrack. Um, Yeah. Dead Presidents is no different. I, I've been jamming the Dead Presidents soundtrack for a few weeks now, and I know you have too, Lindsay. And oh, man, for sure. I mean, it's just, it's unreal how good it is. And it's wild, too, to think that outside of like, you know, one thematic score for the beginning, and I think uh, one other time in the movie that Danny Elfman did, it, it's really just like songs, specifically soul R&B songs of that time period. You know, several Isaac Hayes songs. You know, these are like 11-minute songs, but they have these like instrumental interludes that are like so cool and really uh, 
drive a lot of emotion. And then also using songs that are really well known that people know, like Al Green's uh, Tired of Being Alone, while the camera slowly sweeps around to show that Chris Tucker is like OD'd on um, heroin. Oof. Yeah, that is a rough scene. The um, the one that sticks out to me is the Undisputed Truth song, Smiling Faces, sometimes. That one, when, uh, when Cuddy's coming in, and if anything I can say about this movie is that the soundtrack, it really uses the songs to describe exactly what's happening in the scenes. You know, maybe not like 100% of the time, but a lot of times if you listen to the lyrics that are happening over the scenes, it's telling you what's going on. I really like it. I don't know if anyone's annoyed by it, but I really like it, especially when it's thoughtfully orchestrated. And with a soundtrack of this film, it's not exactly going to be um, every song that's the most popular from, you know, the early 70s, but they're going to be some familiar songs, some just good, real funk beats that might be reminiscent, whether it's, you know, just a James Brown song and you're like, oh, yeah, I know that one. <laughs> but there's just a lot that works with this. And I love a good uh, meaning behind a song that's describing a scene, especially like a, a from a war movie because we're we're seeing this not from like the white perspective mm-hmm. you're not getting you're not getting yep. white music so it's the yeah. first war movie you know where they don't play like a Creedence Clearwater song like over like <laughs> a Vietnam scene or something like that you it's know so it's true. it's, it's yeah. kind of cool and refreshing to see like a different musical style over a war movie that you know we've seen other times where it's like always the same kind of music. The soundtrack to this was a hit. I mean, it was a gold record, was very successful. I mean, in, in some ways, I think uh, more people knew what this movie was because they heard the soundtrack and maybe they yeah. didn't see the movie, but they were like, man, this is a good soundtrack. That's true. God, I just remember the James Brown song, The Payback, how that's happening in that. And uh, Anthony's getting revenge on Cowboy. Just a brilliant scene. Uh, but you're right, though. The soundtrack brought popularity to this movie, which didn't really perform that well like when it came out. Now, granted, it was at a rough time um, between races in American culture. This was released a day after the O.J. Simpson verdict came out. And at that point, black and white, let's just say, uh, it's possible, but like white people weren't going to see any movies that had predominantly black cast. I mean, like in a general, I I say this in a a general way, but it wasn't exactly um, like the easiest time for American culture, especially to support each other as the society that we are. Yeah. And this too, I think it was a movie that was like hard to market because it's a war movie, but it, you know, it was also a heist movie. And so it's like how to, how to, you know, market a movie like that. Though I always thought that this had the coolest poster. It's a very cool looking poster and like very striking. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, this movie was not uh, a big hit at the box office. And also a lot of critics who were huge fans of Menace to Society did not really get behind Dead Presidents. It was kind of critically bashed for being unfocused, for being all over the place, for trying to do too many things. And I don't know, man, I I read some of these reviews and it's kind of shocking to me, like, because I don't feel like Dead Presidents is an unfocused movie. I feel like it's, you know, it has a point. It's very clear. It goes from A to B to C. Sure, it might at times be uh, it's a little light on story or like 
dialogue, you know, like things aren't fleshed out. But at the same time, uh, you know, again, going back to what we said before, like the characters are very like convincing and interesting. And mm-hmm. you're, you're, I mean, I'm there along for the ride of, of Anthony's life and, and what he's going through and, and the people that he meets along the way and his friends and like the neighborhood he lives in, it all feels authentic. So, you know, if it doesn't have the most like riveting dialogue, um, that I don't think like gets in the way. And I also, to be honest, I think there's like a lot of cool lines in this movie and there's like memorable dialogue. I don't think it feels like a basic script or anything like that. A lot from Kirby, I'd have to say from Keith David's character, you know, looking back on this and watching this over and over again, it felt like to me, and I also rewatched Menace to Society um, during all the multiple viewings of, of Dead Presidents, and maybe I'm out of my element saying this, it feels like this movie, reviewers maybe couldn't appreciate the scope of what was trying to happen in the film, and yeah, maybe it is a little light on commentary um, in, in certain areas, but it was there. It was, it had a voice, it had a lot of things to say overall, but I feel like because this movie transcended genres, it wasn't just a coming-of-age movie, it wasn't just a, a war movie, it wasn't a hood movie, and and I think that it gets lumped into that genre of just being about killing or gang or hip-hop or drug trafficking, something to do with movies that had become accepted in some ways about black culture, but weren't necessarily putting off like the best image. In essence, hood movies were like the next step in black exploitation, right? So we have this idea, and this is the accepted marketable idea and we have dead presidents which is playing on that which has elements of it but has all of these other things that are making much more well-rounded idea for a full story i don't know looking back on this i don't feel like it is unfocused or lacking i really enjoy this movie overall it does feel like a you know scorsese movie it feels very rich and it feels like there's so much story and so much involved that multiple viewings you're going to gain more and more from it every time that you watch it. I couldn't really sort of get an idea of this movie if this movie's become kind of a cult hit or not, but I do think this movie is worth checking out if you haven't seen it. I do think if you haven't seen it in a long time, it holds up surprisingly well. It's not the most pleasant watch at times. You know, it is a very depressing film at times, but I think that it's worth it to kind of like put yourself through that when the movies is good in character and is uh, entertaining as this. I always uh, use the deer hunter as a like sort of like barometer for like, putting myself through some like emotionally traumatic movie about once every like three years. I'm like, okay, I'm ready to watch a deer hunter again. (laughs) I think I'm good for like three more years before I sit through dead presidents after, you know, watching this movie several times over the last few weeks, but I will go back to this movie for sure and watch it again. You know, it, even in watching, I rewatched platoon too during this and just visually, Platoon was worse to me than Dead Presidents. I found the social element of Dead Presidents harder to stomach just because it's reality-based. I found that to be worse than the visual elements of the movie. And yeah, there are definitely some graphic 
parts in the film, but nothing that would make it hard for me to watch other than the fact that um, American society has been messed up for many hundreds of years. Other than that, <laughs> um, the the violence of the movie isn't particularly bothersome to me, but that's just me. Well, let's uh, let's stop there. We'll come back for more talk on uh, Dead Presidents here at the very end of the episode. But let's get into our picks of the week. Again, I did uh, the Lorenz Tate connection with Love Jones. But, Lindsay, uh, you went the heist route with uh, another heist movie, Set It Off. What can you tell me about that? Admittedly, and probably not surprisingly, I saw Set It Off long before Dead Presidents because of Miss Queen Latifah. But in watching these movies back to back, it was striking to see two such different films deal with many of the same themes and unfortunate outcomes based on life-changing decisions involving bank robberies. Now, I think it's fairly obvious that Set It Off does owe some to Dead Presidents. The social consciousness of the film's strongest vein all throughout shows how the world isn't always working for the right folks, which leads to making desperate decisions. Written by Takashi Buford and Kate Lanier, Set It Off Story begins with letting us know where all four of our leads are coming from, how they've been dealt unfair hands in life, whether in general or an instance of being screwed over. Frankie, played by Vivica A. Fox, is unjustly fired from her bank telling job after it's assumed she had something to do with a robbery. She did not and is understandably bitter about the ordeal. So Frankie's three close friends, Cleo, Stoney, and Titi, invite her to work with them for a cleaning service. But each is in the middle of their own struggle. Cleo doesn't really have any forward thinking, but she knows she's got to make money to get by. Stoney's been responsible for her little brother and will go to any extreme, even humiliating lengths to get him into a good school. And Titi's a single mom who loves her kid, but is struggling to pay the bills. So you've got four women, all supporting each other, listening, getting each other's struggles, all coming from different places, but sharing in that they're all dealt raw deals in life based on their race, gender, or class. Situations escalate when Stoney's innocent brother's gunned down by police, leaving her ready to just say screw it all. And when T.T. can't afford a babysitter, it just sets into motion this unfortunate situation which gets her kid taken away by DFS. All of these women are having an emotional crisis and thinking, hey, if I could just get a little bit more money, I could climb out of this hole I'm in. Desperate situations lead to even more desperate actions sometimes. And through a fairly believable series of events and conversations between the four friends, they decide to rob a bank. And when the first goes successfully, they start to realize they could pull it off again. But with the cops on their tails, they really can't keep it up forever. Now, first and foremost, this cast rules. As I already said, Queen Latifah and Vivica A. Fox are the leads, but you've also got Jada Pinkett and Kimberly Elise in her film debut. The relationships here feel genuine without being a stereotype. When we spend a good half of the film just getting to know them, feeling for these women and seeing how the world works around them. Like Steel Magnolias in 9 to 5, Set It Off is equal when it comes to who carries the story. Queen Latifah is Cleo is a badass, brave, a little juvenile, but she cares and you definitely want her on your side. And Kimberly Elise's Titi makes me hurt with her sweetness, how she finds her voice and just wants to create a good life for she and her kid. And Vivica, as Frankie, draws us in with the most universally relatable idea of wanting to get revenge for being personally wronged. And then Stoney, struggling with her crushed soul after her brother being killed and banding together with her sisters to become outlaws of sorts, is in direct opposition with her life when an unexpected love interest comes her way. A someone who could maybe save her, but she knows that that's just not the path that she's got to take. Not that we need justification to empathize with bank robbers, but if that's the intention here, it's very well executed for this narrative. 
And Stoney's love interest, by the way, is the smooth-talking hunk of a man, Blair Underwood, playing a man who's just one step away from Richard Gere and Pretty Woman, but he also works for a bank that Stoney's planning to rip off. I remember fully expecting his character to turn on Stoney once he realizes what's up, but he never does. And I gotta give props to the writers for going against what other movies might have done. John C. McGinley and Ella Joyce both um, do some fine work here playing the cops tracking our leads. And there's a moment with McGinley towards the end. And for those of you who've seen this, when he sees Stoney getting away on the bus, man, again, something pretty unexpected happens here, especially for a film which shows how cops shoot before they think. The Mark of Injustice is woven all throughout the script, whether through dialogue or unspoken understandings, and how we empathize with these women. We see how the world has hurt them, forced them into situations, and has robbed them of so much. They're abused by an unjust system and in a world where they're always getting pushed back all abused by men in power in one way or another. And while there's a ton of social commentary, it shouldn't be twisted. This is very much an action movie and an all-female action movie, which really doesn't happen either. One massively notable aspect of F. Gary Gray's direction to set it off is how pulse-pounding it is at times. Personally, action movies don't really get my adrenaline going. Anxiety-riddled situations do. But the last two robberies these women pull off have me on the edge of my seat. Gray's direction is certainly noticeable and very skilled, and in the final act of the film, man, it's hard to look away. You don't even realize how invested you are in the story until, exactly like our leads, you're too far in to turn back. I know it's not reinventing the wheel to root for the bad guys, but honestly, Set It Off gives you so many reasons to care about these women. They're not bad people, they never turn on each other, even when the whole world is turned on them. Quick aside, um, before I close this out, I can't forget to mention that uh, Dr. Dre pops up here as Black Sam. Uh, he's an arms dealer who supplies our bank robbers. And F. Gary Gray had directed some of Dre's music videos, so I'm guessing that's the connection. But it's fun to see him pop up in, I think, at least three scenes. And speaking of music, real quick, uh, if you're familiar with the En Vogue song, Don't Let Go, that is the hip single from this soundtrack and was totally my jam back in the day. I know all the words and sing it in such an embarrassing way in the car. Um, so, okay, if you haven't seen Set It Off, I'm not spoiling anything about what happens, but the last 40 minutes, it's a total nail-biter. Uh, they go from shooting the breeze and talking smack with our crew to zero playing around. So Set It Off remains one of my favorites as far as action movies that try to go the extra mile. Yeah, it's really good. I, I like the you know, you categorize this as an action movie because it is, um, but it is action drama, which mm -hmm. um, generally, you know, doesn't fit because sometimes it, when you're, when they're trying to squeeze drama into action movies, it kind of comes off corny or, you know, I mean, doesn't always fit, um, but set it off, starts out with action, then goes drama for a while and then ramps it back up. And even the love interest aspect of the story is certainly a subplot. You know, it's something that gets that gets woven in, and I like that it doesn't take over the story. This is very much a straight-up action movie, and it's a lot of fun, even if it's really hard in the latter half of the movie. I think F. Gary Gray is a really great director. He's had a very strong yeah. career. And he started off with Friday, right? He started off with Friday, and, and pretty yeah. much I think he's like one of the few directors who just uh, almost every movie he's made has been a hit, like versus, you know, its budget. For sure, a fan of his after seeing uh, especially Straight Outta Compton. Straight Outta Compton is just so fantastic. I know, that's one I want to own. <laughs> All right, your turn. Your turn to tell me about your pick of the week, Justin. 
So my pick of the week was Love Jones, which I chose because I really, this early career of Lorenz Tate, he was just on fire during this time uh, in his early 20s, doing, you know, Menace to Society, to Dead Presidents, to the Inkwell, to Love Jones. And in Love Jones, I think he was like maybe 21 when he did this movie, but he's supposed to be around 25 or 26. The movie is set in Chicago surrounding a group of artistic 20-somethings at the beginning of their careers. Lorenz Tate plays Darius Lovehall, which I think is such a great name. He's an aspiring writer and poet. A lot of him and his friends hang out at a uh, sort of like an upscale jazz poetry slam bar called The Sanctuary, which is actually a real place. Um, I think it's on the north side in Chicago. But one of the nights that he's there doing his poetry, he bumps into Nia Long's Nina Mosley, and he tries to impress her with one of his poems, and it kind of backfires in his face, but eventually, uh, by happenstance, they uh, meet up again at a record store, and he pursues her in sort of a... I think a stalkery kind of way. Like I think by today's standards, I don't know how much the scene would fly, but he gets her number from the check that she writes for uh, her records that she buys and uses it to find her address. And um, she's house sitting for a while, but he goes and approaches her and um, talks her into going out on a date with him. And so thus begins this uh, romance between the two. And it's very much a young person's movie when you're watching it. I, I love this movie when it came out. I saw it at the theaters, and I just thought that the characters were so cool, and it felt like a very like real movie about young people falling, you know, in and out of love and dealing with relationships and dealing with, you know, I like this person, but they like somebody else, or they just got out of this relationship. And so the movie deals with those hardships in a very realistic way. Um, the dialogue in this movie. Uh, does not come off as corny or phony in any way. It just feels very genuine. And to me, this is one of the few, I, I think, romance-type drama movies that, that really, really works. It wasn't a big hit, but I think it resonated with a lot of people because the producers of this film and the writer-director, uh, Theodore Witcher, wanted to make it a point that, that, that it was a, a movie that was African-American-centric but also didn't involve drugs or guns in by the mid 90s. I mean, we've talked about this a little bit during our dead president section. And, you know, there was so many quote unquote hood movies where it almost became a parody of itself. I mean, there was even a parody movie that the Wayans brothers did, you know, don't be a menace. You know, this was a movie that was really trying to like get away from that to show uh, young African Americans that were, you know, thriving in the art scene and that were career oriented. And I think it's a really, really a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen it, it's so much worth your time. I wish it was streaming right now, but it's not. I ha I have the DVD, but it's a shame that this movie is like not available to stream. I think you can buy a digital copy on Amazon, and it's totally worth, you know, the nine or ten dollars to purchase it. Um, and it just an incredible cast. I mean, Nia Long, Lorenz Tate, Bill Bellamy, uh, Isaiah Washington, Lisa Nicole Carson. Just such a great cast, uh, and also a cast that was. Very young, I mean, all starting out, like you've seen all these people in bigger stuff now and in television. Uh, stylistically, the movie looks really cool, and the soundtrack to this, just like Dead Presidents, um, you'll just want to listen to it on repeat. It really, uh, I'd forgotten how great Lauren Hill was, and after listening to the Love Jones soundtrack, I kind of like went on a big uh, Lauren Hill binge. Yeah, the soundtrack really does stand out. And Love Jones is just a wonderful romance movie and just a good story. Uh, I was about to say rom-com, but it does kind of fit into, 
you know, it does kind of fit into like that genre, like a little bit. Um, I mean, I feel like it's just a really nice, wonderful movie. And the wildest thing to me about the Love Jones is that, um, you know, it has become a cult hit. It wasn't successful at the time it came out, but Theodore Witcher, who wrote and directed it, has not made another film. You know, he tried for a long time to get other movies made through studio system, and he just could not get another movie off the ground. And some of the stuff that he might have had an opportunity to make. He just wasn't interested in. He said he wants to be the the black Terrence Malick to where he, he, he doesn't make anything for like 25 years. And then he just like comes <laughs> out with another movie, you know, and everybody like, you know, swarms to see it because he, you know, was an acclaimed director that hasn't made anything in over 20 years. Yeah. I mean, hey, that's a great idea. Love Jones is a wonderful movie. And I don't know one person who's seen it that has anything negative to say about it. It's just a it's just a really great film. So those are our picks of the week. Set it off and love Jones. If you haven't seen them, totally check them out. If you can find them, here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. As tragic as the tale is in Dead Presidents, the story isn't completely unfamiliar. It's someone's experience, even if loosely based upon. The Vietnam aspect of the story is the hardest part for me. The main character changes after war, even if he retains who he was before. What he saw during wartime was something he couldn't escape. This idea brought me straight to Billy's underseen, gamble-at-the-time film, The Razor's Edge. Surprisingly, I think I've only had one other Murray moment about just one aspect of the film, and that was concerning how he covertly memorialized John Belushi in a pivotal scene. But The Razor's Edge is about a man who goes into World War I and realizes after he returns that he's not the same man he was before entering. His relationship with his fiancée has changed, she doesn't understand him, his attitude is different, and he suffers from survivor's guilt after seeing so many of his comrades die right in front of him. Like we see in Dead Presidents, preconceived plans on what life would be like after returning all just go out the window. The outcomes of both films may be vastly different. We're talking about going from World War I in 1917-18 to the latter half of the Vietnam War in the 70s, but the emotional reactions are similar. The Vietnam War was the same experience, Billy told an interviewer while describing The Razor's Edge. We had a couple of years to get ready for it, and then there it was. Sort of this creeping war that nobody knew about or understood. It really did polarize the country for a while, and then all of a sudden it became the focal point of dissatisfaction about certain things. Like Dead Presidents, Billy was inspired by the novel by W. Somerset Maugham, and even co-wrote the screenplay with friend John Byram. John had wanted to direct this film for a good while, but I guess it had never come up in conversation between he and Billy. John said he dropped off a copy of the novel for Billy's first wife, Mickey Kelly, and apparently 
Billy got a hold of it, read the first 50 pages, and called John and was so committed to the idea of making a film. The story of a man rediscovering himself, becoming enlightened to an existential point after the trauma of war just really spoke to him. And this set in motion one of the most interesting ways for two people to create a screenplay. John had a reputation for not letting anybody change a word of anything he wrote. Billy told Rolling Stone in 84, So we started talking about it, and I suggested that we should work under the most difficult conditions as we could find, like bars and places where there was a lot of activity. Intentionally doing this might sound like insanity, but it was all in the spirit of the story itself, writing, leaving your writing, and returning to a difficult situation to continue the story. We'd always have this experiment, Billy explained in an interview, this experience of what it was like to come back to, not just to the work you had to do, but to yourself so you could remember something that you were trying to do. Billy went a little deeper into the experience to Rolling Stone, saying he felt good things come from difficult situations. I thought no matter how badly we did, at least we'd have the experience of trying to concentrate on one thing while being distracted all the time. We'd work in bars where the jukebox was on and places where there were a lot of people. We were constantly interrupted, and we traveled all around. We practically went to all the restaurants and bars in the tri-state area. He means New York here, of course, because people were interrupting him, saying, hey, aren't you from Saturday Night Live? It got so as we couldn't even work at home. It was too distracting. So we decided to take trips. Billy and John got to where they could work at any time, day or night, and their travels took them all the way to France and India to write, places where Billy's Razor's Edge character sought out. So it makes sense that they went that far away. And in speaking about their time in India... Billy said, it was chaos, absolute chaos. There were all sorts of Englishmen running around and screaming and monks saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. And we were just in the middle of this religious war, almost. John and I just sat down at the bottom of the step of this place and talked like there was nothing going on at all. And I said, you know, we're the only people here that are prepared for this. And we just ended up not being taken in by all the distractions. Like I said, the journey, when compared to Dead Presidents, might be really different here, but it is just that, a journey. Someone's journey stemming from disillusionment from their time in war. And even in writing the story based off a novel is a journey. So what's the takeaway? Doesn't matter the time period, war changes people, and what they do with that experience is a personal journey. Some are better or worse than others, but I couldn't help but be affected by both stories here and notice the similarities. I'm sure I'll have more moments from uh, The Razor's Edge in the future, but here's your connection to Anthony's story and Dead Presidents. You got to bring uh, Razor's Edge back into the podcast. I did. I really do enjoy that movie a lot, but uh, the uh, disillusionment of war and just like, not kind of knowing what to do. It took me a second to get my bearings on thinking on how to uh, liken Bill Murray to dead presidents. And then I was just like thinking and I'm like, oh, wait, it's kind of I mean, it's not the same story, but the same thing happens to this character. Yeah, that was a good connection. Well, thank you. He fits in everywhere. You know, it just keeps happening. Well, before we wrap things up for the uh, episode, did you have any final thoughts on dead presidents? You know, on top of just continuing the conversation about everything involving the story in Dead Presidents, it is really worth seeking out the true story of Ari Moretazan and what really happened to him. And uh, it, it is true in a lot of ways that his life did begin, you know, when he went to jail and just kind of everything that happened to him. And he had a new life afterwards. And in some ways, it was a blessing. So he's a really fascinating guy. And I was happy to learn a lot about his life. But definitely seek out some uh, interviews and uh, information on him. Yeah, there's some current. Uh, current is like 
within the last six months interviews of like mm-hmm. a Zoom Zoom interview of him on YouTube. Yeah, he's got a lot to say. What about you, Justin? You have any uh, final thoughts? Uh, I was just gonna say, you know, the Hughes brothers uh, were a great combo team, and they did do a few more movies together before splitting off and and kind of going their separate ways and doing their own individual films as, as a director. After Dead Presidents, they made a documentary called American Pimp, which really sort of further explores the Cuddy character that you see in Dead Presidents. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting movie, It's a, especially if you like documentaries. It's definitely worth a look. And uh, they also did a From Hell with Johnny Depp, which is a take on uh, the Jack Ripper story. And uh, the last film they did together, uh, I think it came out maybe about 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, and that was The Book of Eli, which is uh, kind of an interesting rewatch now because it's uh, one of those post-apocalyptic movies and stars Denzel Washington. That movie's always been on my list. I just haven't ever gotten around to it. This will probably light that fire for me again. I feel like every time we do an episode, I, I find myself making a list of movies that I need to watch that are related to the movie or the actors, or the directors. I know. We need to find a producer behind the show so we can just like watch all the movies that we want to watch. Yeah. We just don't have time for because we have to have other jobs. We're working on it. If you're out there, let us know. Yeah. Well, uh, we hope you enjoyed our episode on Dead Presidents. So, Lindsay, what do we got coming up for the next episode? Well, it's going to be another special one. And it seems like we do this once a season now. And as the release date for this upcoming episode happened to be on April 20th, we got a little bright idea in mind. I'm excited about this one. 420 stoner special episode. What? Who knew? Yeah, this should be a fun one. We're going to take you on a tour of the stoner movies of the last, what, what are we going to do, 70 years? We're going to condense it all down into hopefully a two-hour episode. Pretty much, yeah, from when they started, what the origins are of marijuana and film up to where we are today. It's going to be pretty fun. Yeah, I've got a lot of stoner movies to watch. (sighs) That's going to be the next few weeks. Yep. Which one of us will be burnt out first? So. (laughs) No pun intended. Right. So a lot to look forward to. Well, if you haven't uh, already, please do uh, check us out on social media. If you'd like to find out information on upcoming episodes or finding out about old episodes we've done before, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on YouTube, Instagram. You can also, if you'd like to check out old episodes, you can find them archived on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. There we also have a merch store where you can uh, buy merch related to the podcast and other crazy uh, movie-related items. All that money uh, helps us uh, keep funding this podcast and it always helps out every penny helps us uh keep producing good quality shows for your ears and we thank you so much for listening until next time i'm justin johnson and i'm Lindsay reaper thanks for listening everyone